Hello, and thank you for tuning in to New Glasgow Christian Church. My name is Stephen Weatherby, and I'm the pastor here at NGCC, a small rural church with a big heart located in central Prince Edward Island, Canada. We're so glad that you could join us. Imagine a young doctor walking into a refugee camp. In this camp, he sees an old man, half naked, shivering and struggling to keep warm under a threadbare blanket. The doctor looks closer at the blanket and sees that it's filthy. It's smeared with dirt and it's probably ridden with disease. In horror, the doctor rips the blanket off the old man and says, What are you doing? Don't you know that blanket will make you sick? Then he walks off and says, My job is done here. But has he actually done anything for this old man? And can we blame him? Can we blame the old man for picking up this blanket as soon as the doctor walks away? It's so easy to point out what someone else is doing wrong. In fact, I consider myself to be an expert at seeing flaws and imperfections, (laughs) at least in others. (laughs) I've always had a passion for theology all through school, and I've never found it hard to identify something that I think is incorrect or bad theology, because that's easy. It's easy to see a problem. It's easy to call it out, to point and say, that isn't right, you're wrong. Anyone can do that. But the truth is that like the refugee with the disease-ridden blanket, it does little good to attack false theology if we don't do anything about it, other than to tell someone that they're wrong. C.S. Lewis says that all sin's pleasures begin as good desires corrupted. And likewise, I believe that bad theology in the church usually springs from genuine needs that are addressed incorrectly. You can't just rip a disease-ridden blanket off someone with no home or belongings and leave them in the cold with no solution. But I think we would all agree that we couldn't lovingly leave that person under that blanket either. We're coming into the fall. We finished our sermon series on Sabbath and rest. And so we're getting back to some uh, letters and and Bible study. And so we're going to start off with just a nice two-week series, um, but it won't be light. Uh, We're going to be studying a very interesting and unique letter in the New Testament, and that is the letter of Jude. Jude is a letter that was written specifically because there were false teachers that had infiltrated the church. These teachers were leading people into sin and corrupting the truth of the gospel. The author wrote this letter to remind the church that they'd been called by Jesus and that they now needed to stand up and defend the truth, to contend for their faith against those who wanted to corrupt the church with sin and lies. And so we're going to call this sermon series Contend for the Faith. Now fast forward to the present day. The church, in some ways, is in a similar place. There are more and more voices in our churches that are leading people into sin. We're being told more and more frequently that unless we turn a blind eye to sin, unless we sacrifice God's truth for the lies of the world, we are unloving, hateful, and that our days are numbered. And it's easy to to see why people are saying that. I'm definitely empathetic, but the lies is that 
if we don't sacrifice God's truth, that our churches will close their doors and that no one will want anything to do with us. And so I think this letter that we're going to study has a lot of relevance to where the church finds itself today. As false teachers rose up inside the church in the first century, Jude encouraged believers to contend for their faith by putting forth an intense effort to fight for the truth of the gospel. And then Jude also assures them that Jesus will protect them and to preserve them until he returns and presents them to God the Father. And I think that in the same way, as the church today continues to to come under attack, God will equip us to withstand the threats and to fight for the true faith. But it's not just enough for us to refute false teaching when it comes into the church. It's not just enough to rip the blanket off someone unlovingly, because that is hateful. We have to be prepared and ready to walk alongside people, to cover them in a warm, clean blanket, the blanket they truly need. So it's not going to be a light series, but it'll only be two weeks. So (laughs) uh, hold on to your seats. So let's read our passage this morning. It's a big chunk. Uh, We're going to read Jude. Jude is just one chapter. Um, but it's, there's a lot packed into that chapter. We're going to read verses 1 to 16 this morning. I'll ask you to stand with me as I read this today. Starting in verse 1, this letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first raised Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority that God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. People who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did simply said the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them. And so they bring about sorrow awaits them, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money, and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. 
They are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars, doomed forever to blackest darkness. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. You may be seated. So obviously Jude did not have any strong feelings about these people in the church. <laughs> Very light, easygoing passage, nothing too serious here. <laughs> uh, now, I know that's a lot of scripture. There's a lot of really, really harsh words in there. Um, it, I, it's not going to be a light couple of weeks. Um, we're going to unpack it verse by verse, bit by bit, just so that we don't get lost in the greater context. And I guess whenever I'm doing a series that's this heavy or serious, I always want to remind everyone, when we're studying a letter, we're zooming in on one part of Scripture. So don't lose sight of the larger context. Um, when we zoom in on love, we have to remember that there's still judgment in, in God's plan for the world. And when we zoom in on heavy passages like this, we have to remember that there is still love and grace. Fair enough? <laughs> All right, because there's a lot of heavy words here. <laughs> so I'm going to start just by reading these first couple of verses, just to, to kind of get ourselves back into that first part. Uh, this introduction, he says, this letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I'm writing to all those who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. So first of all, we have who wrote this letter, a man named Jude. Uh, and we don't know 100% who this is, but the best theory is that it's likely one of the half-brothers of Jesus that's mentioned in the Gospels. Jude is a shortened version of the name Judas, and we know that Jesus had a brother named Judas, and he had a brother named James, so it fits. That said, it might not have been him, so take that with a grain of salt, but that's who we think it may have been. Now, from what we can tell in the Gospels, we assume that none of his brothers followed Jesus before his death. However, after Jesus rose from the dead, they did become disciples, and we see that in Acts. Now, interestingly, Judas identifies himself here as the brother of James, but he only refers to himself as a servant of Jesus. I thought that was interesting. And the specific group that he's writing this letter to is not stated. Uh, he just says to all those who hold their hope in Jesus. But from the way it's written, the, the, the language, it feels like he's writing to a Jewish audience, uh, Jews who had converted to Christianity. Now, usually with letters like this, when you get into the passages, you get all this heavy stuff, you kind of skip past the introduction. But in Jude's opening statements in this first verse, he reminds his readers of three powerful truths. And I think as we're studying such harsh, heavy material, it's important to remind ourselves of these truths before we go in because it's important, it's central to everything that we believe. So first of all, they've been called. In this context, he's talking about God's calling of people to himself as followers of Christ. We have been called to be followers of Jesus. Second, they are loved by God the Father. 
And third, they are kept safe in the care of Jesus. And some translations say they are kept for Jesus. So Jude is declaring to us as believers that we are guarded over and watched over by Jesus and that he will strengthen us to persevere until the very end. That's his opening statements to his readers, and as we'll see, that's very important for them to know. It gives them courage in the face of what they are looking at. So I think that's important for us to know as well, is that we as the church are guarded and watched over by Jesus himself, and that he is giving us strength to fight and persevere until the end. And the second thing here that I want us to focus on just as much as all the rest of these verses today is his prayer, may God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Before he says all those harsh, hard, heavy things, he says, may God give you more mercy, peace, and love. Keep those three things in your mind as we study this passage. Um, It keeps us centered and keeps us from going too far down the rabbit hole of chasing bad theology. So I'm going to start reading in verses 3, verses 3 to 7. He says, Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once and for all to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to remind you, though you already know this, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority that God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. So, Jude had this big plan to write this letter about their common salvation in Jesus, but something must have happened. We don't know what it was, But something came up, something to do with false teachers in the church, that compelled him to write a quick and fast letter, just one chapter. He had to get something on paper and fire it off for them as quick as he could. So something was actively happening in this group that he was writing to. So he writes this fast letter urging them to contend for the faith, which means to struggle for or to fight for. Now because these teachers had infiltrated the church who were teaching them these wrong things, He urges them to put forth this intense effort to fight for the truth of the faith. Now, one interesting thing here is that, except for a couple alluding statements, he doesn't call out specifically the teachings that they are spreading. Instead, he points to the way that these people are living their lives. And that their moral compromise is a direct indication of the wrong teaching and theology that they are holding to. So first of all, he says that they, uh, they say that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. And so these false teachers were corrupting the truth of God's grace by turning grace into a free pass, an opportunity to sin and do whatever you want. 
And I think there's a form of that teaching that still exists today. There's this idea that uh, we're already forgiven by God, uh, and so we can do whatever we want because God will just forgive us. So it doesn't really matter what we do. The mantra, I am free in Christ, can be distorted into the idea that we're free to sin and afterwards play the grace card to cover ourselves. But that is not the purpose of God's grace. In reality, it's a denial and a rejection of Jesus' teachings and authority. Now moving on, Judas warns them to keep away from those beliefs, those teachings, and those practices by giving a series of illustrations, uh, some from the Old Testament and some were from Jewish tradition. So as I read those, some of those stories that he kind of cites as common knowledge probably did not ring a bell to any of you, even if you've been in the church your whole life. Uh, That's because they're not in the Bible. Now, in these examples he gives, Jude reminds his readers about people who rebelled against God's authority and received his justice in response. The first story is about how God delivered his people from Egypt, but then destroyed those who did not believe. In Numbers 14, the newly delivered Israelites start to grumble about God and his plan, and that they're wandering around the desert. And, that he, and they plan on committing a mutiny against Moses to replace him so that they can go back to Egypt and slavery. Now, God intervened before they could stone Moses and the other leaders to death. And in response to their rebellion, God declared that anyone above the age of 20 would die in the wilderness and not enter the promised land. And that's um, when they're wandering around. They never get to go in. Punishment. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not covered by grace, but it does mean that now that we're saved, we, we we're supposed to be changed. doesn't mean we never fall, but it doesn't mean we celebrate the way we used to live. Verses 8 to 16, in the same way these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. And that's one of those ones that's Jewish tradition. It's like, oh yeah, when that happened. But we don't, we've never read that in the Bible, so uh, that's why it's not familiar. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money, and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves, and they are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They're like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. And they are like wandering stars, doomed forever to blackest darkness. Enoch, who lived in the second, seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people, saying, Listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done, And for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves, and they flatter others to get what they want. So there's a lot there as well. Um, We see Jude comparing these corrupt teachers to those previous three illustrations we talked about, saying that in the very same way that those people did, these false teachers are rejecting God's authority. These people are resorting to what he calls the strength of their dreams, suggesting maybe they uh, claim to receive some of the things they were teaching from visions or dreams that they were having. Rather than basing their teaching upon the foundation of Scripture, they were claiming these dreams, visions, and prophecies to justify their beliefs. And I think that can parallel a similar danger that we can face today as well. Uh, I am definitely a believer that God certainly can use dreams, visions, and prophetic things to confirm his will to us. Uh, If you've ever read about uh, the Muslim community, some of the experiences they have uh, of people who are diehard believers in Islam, and they're having these dreams and visions of Jesus. And, And I do believe those are real. He can use whatever he wants to confirm his will to us. But too often, people share God's message to them through these visions, dreams, and prophetic words that don't line up with Scripture. They, they, they kind of evaluate their visions or their words from God as, a, as coming from above uh, or in a higher place or authority than Scripture itself. And that's a dangerous practice, and it can become abusive. That's usually the start of cults, where we almost worship a person and their prophetic visions over Scripture. So not to dismiss that mode of God speaking to us, but we have to be careful. Now moving on to these words in verse 8, about that part that we talked about, the angel Michael and Moses' body. Um, That's not in the Bible. As we said, it comes from something called the Testament of Moses. It's an extra-biblical writing, not something familiar to us, But in the first century, it was a well-known Jewish writing. And so while it's not scripture, it would have been a very familiar story to the people reading this letter. They would have said, oh yeah, okay, when that happened. In verses 14 to 15, John concludes this section of his letter, a book called First Enoch, to make this point. Uh, I won't talk about these extra-biblical writings too much, but I'll talk about his point, which is this. As believers... We are to fight for and defend the truth of our faith. A couple more minutes. Now that we've studied these verses about how to apply them to us and to our lives and to our setting, uh, given our setting, the world we're in, the place we're planted, what should we take away from these verses and apply to our lives today? First of all, we are called by God to defend the faith. I want to be clear, that does not mean we're meant to go to war with the culture or the people around us outside the church who disagree with us. This is not talking about the world. This is specifically, this passage is very specifically talking about false teaching inside the churches. People who come in and try to twist the truth, who try to say, hey, that sin's actually okay, Or, hey, if we overlook these couple things, it'll make things a lot easier for us. Now, to be here, clear, again, we're not here to judge those outside the church. That is not our job. And sometimes 
Christians make the mistake of thinking that our job is to judge the world. It's not. That is God's job. We don't have any part in that. But we absolutely do have a clear example in Scripture that shows that inside of the body, we absolutely do hold each other to account, both in regards to teaching and to sin. But we do it in love. Remember those first three verses. May God uh, increase us in the the love, peace, uh, and mercy. The point is that inside the church, inside the body, we have to fight for the truth. God's word is truth. And I'm going to be honest, uh, as a pastor who's 28 in the world we live in, it would make things so my Bible, my land, it would make things so much easier to do that. And I really wish that we had that freedom because it would make our job a lot easier as Christians, but we can't. I don't have that freedom, and neither do you. We, we can't just rip out the things we don't like because it's God's truth, not Stephen's truth. We're called to fight for the faith and to defend God's truth within the church. So that's the first thing I think we should take away from this passage. And the second is kind of similar or, or connects off of it, which is that freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. Now, our sin is forgiven, but that doesn't mean we have a free pass to sin whenever we want or to ignore sin in the church. Now, you probably remember about this time last year we studied James, and we talked about faith versus works. Uh, we're not saved by doing good things. We don't go to hell um, as Christians just because we did one bad thing or slipped up. That's not how it works. There is grace. There's forgiveness. We expect, we, we come as we are. We don't expect people to come to God perfect and holy. And we don't decide if someone's saved or not either. We're not the judge. But there is an expectation that when someone comes to Jesus, we, we repent of our sin, we turn our back on the world, we die to it. We die to our love of it and our love of celebrating it. There's also an expectation in Scripture the church does actively address sin within the body. So that's the second thing that I think we should take from this. The third one um, kind of goes back to those first couple of verses, and I wanted to end with this intentionally because it's such a heavy topic, which is that contending for the faith is done with grace. And I would argue this is just as important as the first two points. Like I said at the beginning, it's so easy for someone to come in and rip a filthy disease blanket off someone who is homeless and tell them it's bad for them. But it's a lot harder for someone to walk alongside them, explain with love and grace why they need to give up the blanket, and then help to wrap them up in a clean, warm, and new one. But that is what we are called to do. We're called to contend for the faith. We're not just called to point things out and make people feel bad. We're called to love one another, and we have to remember that as well. So we're to do all of this with grace and mercy and love. So to conclude this morning, we must remember that as the church, we are constantly in a state of spiritual warfare, not with the culture or the world like we like to think, because that makes it easier. We're in a state of spiritual warfare with Satan and sin. He wants to divide us. He wants the church to fail. He wants to cause us to fight among ourselves and turn our backs on God's truth. 
But remember that we're called by God to fight and contend for our faith, for the truth, to defend it. Even when it's not popular, when it's not the easy thing to do. But also remember we do so with love, grace, mercy, and compassion. So that is the first half of the letter to Jude. And next week we'll talk a little more about the how. But as we leave here this morning, my prayer for us is that we would all be strong and united, that we would ground ourselves in prayer and his word, and that we would contend for the faith together as one body with grace, mercy, and the love of Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. I thank you so much for your truth. And I thank you so much, more than anything, for your grace and your forgiveness of sin. Also help us to be courageous and brave, to stand for your truth within your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that this week's teaching was a blessing and an encouragement to you. If you live in the New Glasgow area, we would love for you to come and join us for our Sunday gathering. For information on service times, location, and more, check out our website at ngcc.ca. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week.